Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold. Thank you for joining me today. So today's episode will be the last for the season before I take a one-month break and pick back up in September. This week, we finish off my God and Government class I'm teaching at Hilltown Baptist Church. This is week six of that class, and we'll be looking at the topic of civil disobedience and resistance. So it should be a, a fun a fun topic, fun discussion, certainly controversial, no doubt. I hope you enjoy it. And without further delay, week six of God and Government. Well, welcome. Welcome, everyone, to uh, week six of uh, this class, God and Government. Hope that uh, it's been enjoyable to you. Uh, before we begin, let's open up in a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for another beautiful day that you've given us, for the freedom and opportunity to come and learn about your word and to gather together in safety. We pray that you would bless our conversation, bless this discussion. May it be glorifying to you and faithful to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So uh, we're in week six of the class, which is discussion on civil disobedience and resistance. So I'm sure you're all eager you know, a bunch of rebels in this room here, so I'm sure you're all, all eager, eager to talk about that. Uh, next week I'll be on vacation, but Brad Landing, and he's not here right now today. He, he's on his way. See, there you go. That's good. He has agreed to lead a discussion, kind of a Q&A. I mean, we try to have some conversation or open time for discussion at the end of every class. I know it's not always possible trying to get all the material covered. So if you have any comments, questions, concerns or topics that just haven't been addressed, uh, please bring all of them next week. Uh, I'm sure Brad will have a few things that he'll say, but then it, we want it to be a very open discussion. So please, uh, please come to that if you can. So uh, just to kind of begin, again, we've, we've looked at uh, the different spheres of authority that God has instituted. Uh, individual government, family government, church government, state government, and that all of them are to be under the authority of Christ because he is the creator of all things and in him all things hold together. All things are made for him, through him, and to him. And before him are all things as we read in, in the scriptures. So the, we've looked at things such as what's uh, the responsibility of each of these spheres, how do they interact, how do they overlap, what happens when uh, one kind of fails in its mission and the others have to pick up the slack. Um, but then we have to answer, ask, ask the question, well, what happens when they don't agree with each other or there's um, abuse that takes place within one or the other? But I want to first begin before we answer that question with looking at the fact that, you know, we talk about culture wars and uh, every culture has gods of the systems, as we could, as, as it's best to maybe put it. Um, essentially, the, the highest authority in that system or in that territory, in that land upon which there's no further appeal, uh, that which has the highest value and protection. And if you look at the Old Testament, uh, it's, it's pretty common. Uh, Egypt had their gods, and they believed that those gods were sovereign uh, in the Nile River and that area of Egypt. Um, and then if you move over to Assyria, they have their own gods that kind of handles you know, areas over there. Uh, you, you would hear things in the Old Testament such as uh, Baal Peor, 
that basically means like the Baal of the land called Peor. So they had all these little gods all over different territories of, uh, of the world, and they believed that those gods were the gods of those areas. And that kind of carries over into uh, Greek mythology, Roman mythology, Poseidon, Neptune, the gods of, you know, the god of the ocean. And if you were going on a journey uh, across the sea, you would make a sacrifice to that particular god because he has the authority in that domain. That's his domain. Or if you were going to war, it would be Ares or Mars, the god of war. Um, so every system, every culture has a god of the system, and, and I believe it's still true today. There's always that highest authority after which there's no, there's no further discussion. That's the final authority. That is the highest value and the greatest protection. Now, uh, one of the early church fathers, Augustine of Hippo, uh, around 400 AD, he lived as the Roman Empire was falling apart. Uh, in his book, City of God, he defined a nation as an assemblage of reasonable beings bound together by a common agreement as to the objects of their love. So essentially, what is a nation? It's a group of people that have a common love. And that's really where nations all, in a sense, come from. Now, it could be based on ethnicity, family, values. Um, in the Roman Empire, it was the, the common object of the, of the Roman gods or the idea of Rome, the glory of Rome, uh, the power of the Caesar, things like that. So any nation or th that wants to be held together has to have something at its core uh, upon which there is agreement. Now, the problem is, though, is that humans don't agree on the objects of their love, and sometimes uh, different ideas pop up that causes dissension or division. So uh, what happens when, let's say, you have a nation that has a general uh, semblance of, of what they believe, and then a minority group pops up that has a different view of things, uh, maybe a different object of their love, right? So what's going to end up happening is that minority group is either going to be tolerated or it's going to be accommodated or it's going to be dominated. So uh, an example would be the early church. So at first, the Christians were kind of ignored. Uh, they were a small sect, and they were considered to be a small sect of Judaism, uh, and they weren't really a threat too much to the empire. So for a while, they were tolerated. There were pockets of, of persecution. Uh, Emperor Nero had his moments of persecuting the Christians in the city of Rome, and the Christians got persecuted sporadically, but it never became empire-wide until around you know, 200 or so years AD, 200 or so years after the birth of Christ. Um, and at first it was tolerated, but then it couldn't really be accommodated because uh, in the Roman world, I mean, you can worship whoever God you wanted. They didn't really care as long as you gave a pinch of incense to Caesar, as long as you uh, obeyed the Roman gods. Uh, it didn't really matter. And, and you see that kind of theme happen in the Old Testament too. Nebuchadnezzar did the same thing. Yeah, he didn't really care what you worshipped as long as whenever he plays the music, everyone bows down to the golden statue of himself. But besides, aside from that, he didn't really care what you believed. And the problem is, is that the Christians couldn't compromise in that way. They, they believed that there was only one God, and they could not, in good conscience, uh, give a pinch of incense or a wine offering or a burnt offering to Caesar or his image. And so the Christians could not be accommodated. Their, their love could not be 
uh, meshed in with or brought in with the other loves of the Roman people. It just it didn't mix. And so a, a, a war, a culture war broke out, and the Romans basically decided to try to dominate the Christians and persecute them out of existence, which didn't work. So eventually that culture war uh, led to conflict and to essentially, well, eventually the Roman Empire adopting Christianity and becoming Christianized in that, in that regard. So early Christianity did not conform. It could not really accommodate itself to the, the pagan uh, polytheism. Um, and so there is where you get resistance, friction, and conflict. All right, so that's kind of the reason why conflict happens. You have different gods, they have different laws, and these laws conflict with each other. So the question is, who do you listen to? Who do you obey? Yeah, go ahead. There were times where the Jews were persecuted, like kicked out of, there were times where they were kicked out of Rome. All the Jews had to leave Rome. Um, the Jews were kind of left, uh, um, an accommodation did happen at some point in the early Roman Empire where the Jews were considered small enough and you know, they, they were such a hassle that the Romans basically allowed them to keep their temple and they had an exemption. They didn't have to um, offer a pinch of incense to Caesar because they were Jewish. It was, it was an ethnic and religious thing, right? But it got weird when the Gentiles started becoming Christians. Okay, so the Romans first think that the Christians are just a sect of Judaism. And that's fine as long as it's just a bunch of Jews worshiping this guy named Jesus. But now Romans are starting to become Christians. And that is a threat to what is called Romanitas, or Romanness. So the idea of a Roman not being Roman, but being adopting this, this god of the Jews, that's a problem. Now that's a threat to society. It went down a different track, yeah. So, and then, of course, the Jews didn't like the Christians either. So there was kind of a mutual persecution going on there. You know, the Jews trying to get Paul executed. And then later on, Nero blames the Christians for the fire in Rome. And, and it goes on from there. So that's why the Christians didn't really, at first they had protection. But then as the Gentiles became Christian, it became a problem, if that makes sense. Thank you. Good question. So now we kind of just want to, I want to get into the concept of resistance. Like when, when, when there's conflicting laws or conflicting gods, what, when, do you, when do we resist? Do we resist? Why do we resist? What does the scripture have to say about saying no to some kind of command or, or prohibition, right? And what we, I think we see in scripture is some general principles of when we're commanded to sin, or prohibited from righteousness. I just want to give three examples here. There are many more, but for the sake of time, we're just going to cover these three. Uh, there'll be more to talk about in a little bit. But could someone please read Exodus 1, 15 through 22? The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name were Shiprah and Pua, when you help the Hebrew woman in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egypt 
Egyptian women, they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. The Pharaoh gave the order to all his people, every boy that is born to you must throw in, you must throw into the river, but let every girl live. Okay. So this is one example, again, being commanded by Pharaoh to do something pretty wicked, killing the, the firstborn sons, or all the boys, in fact. Um, but it said they feared the Lord more than they feared Pharaoh. That doesn't mean there's no consequences. Pharaoh wasn't happy about it, but they chose at that moment to recognize that uh, what Pharaoh was commanding was not in line with what God required. Uh, next example would be to cease evangelism. So Acts 5, 27-32, please. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Excellent. So another example, we have uh, God has commanded his people to share the gospel, to be witnesses and to testify to his lordship. And when they were told not to do that uh, and threatened with punishment, they said, we need to obey God rather than men. In this case, God, uh, God's law trumps, trumps uh, man's prohibition, if you will. And then the third example I had today was uh, about committing idolatry. Could someone please read Daniel 6, 1 through 13? It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because of an excellent spirit within him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. When the high officials of the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where, his, where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. 
He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before, before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the, the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, paid no attention to you, O king, for the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Thank you. And there's much more we could... Maybe you remember that story. Obviously, he gets thrown into the den of lions, and the king tries to find a way for Daniel to get out of it, but per their constitution, once the king makes a law, it can't be revoked. So... There's that. Um, but it's interesting that these satraps, are, they realize that the only thing that they can do is to purposely pit uh, their God or their morality, their law, against God's law. That's the only way to cause this kind of conflict. They want to purposely cause a conflict. They even said the only way we're going to trap him is by putting him in a situation where he has to either disobey the king or disobey his God. Um, and then, of course, Daniel continues to do what he has always been doing and does not uh, listen to the, that, that law, that command, the requirement of idolatry or of, of praying to uh, the, the, the king, uh, Darius, for, for 30 days. So that's just a, a one example there. And we're going to go back to this passage in a little bit here. Um, but there's other uh, situations in Scripture where we see resistance take place and reasons why we would resist. Uh, or disobey in, in one regard. And it's when one sphere oversteps the God-ordained boundaries. If we believe that God has given lawful authority to certain spheres, and if that sphere decides to lay claim to authority that was not given to it, it's disobeying the Lord, and uh, it should be resisted in a sense. Or if it advocates its lawful authority and does not do what God commands it to do, again, there should be uh, resistance in a certain sense, and we'll look at what that what that looks like here in a bit. Uh, and the reason why we can say this is because God is the one who sets the boundaries as to what spheres can do what. Could someone please read Matthew 22, 15 through 22? Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent the disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us, then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Excellent. So, it's interesting that we see a parallel between that and Daniel, because in both cases, the enemies, well, the satraps in the first passage and the Pharisees in this one, they're purposely trying to cause conflict. They want to put Jesus against 
Caesar. They want to do that on purpose uh, to try to trap him. So the satraps try to trap Daniel, and the Pharisees, scribes, try to trap Jesus. But Jesus makes it clear that uh, in using the, uh, the analogy of a coin, Caesar's made in God's image. We're all made in God's image. The coin's made in Caesar's image, so you can give that back to Caesar. But what is made in God's image is humans. All of us are made in God's image, including Caesar himself. And it's um, the fact is that God is the one who has set the boundaries by the very fact that Jesus is saying this. He is the one that decides what is Caesar's and what is not. Caesar doesn't get to decide that. God is the one who has decided uh, uh, what it is. So Caesar cannot demand what is God's. That rightly belongs to God. If he were to do that, that would be wrong, uh, like worship, idolatry, things like that. And Caesar does have authority, but it is, again, it is, it is limits are placed around it by God himself. He's the one that establishes what Caesar can and cannot do. So, again, to kind of summarize this point, when we as individuals are commanded to sin or to not do what God requires, that's an instance where resistance uh, probably should be taking place. And when one sphere oversteps its God-ordained boundaries, again, you have a, a violation there that needs to be corrected in some regard. Now, uh, I want to uh, look at just some historical uh, examples, uh, passages, not passages, I should say, but uh, just writings that I thought were particularly helpful as I looked at uh, what people wrote in history. So uh, one man named John of Salisbury, he was a bishop in England in the 1100s, and he served under the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he wrote a book called The Statesman. And I just found very, one interesting passage that I wanted to share with you, and he kind of sums up, this kind of summarizes all that we've been talking about here the last few minutes is in this. He says, uh, I am persuaded that devoted shoulders are to support the ruler, and not only do I suffer him, but I suffer him gratefully, insofar as he is subject to God and follows his decrees. Otherwise, if he resists divine commandments and wills me to be a participant in his plot against God, I respond with unrestrained unstrained voice that God is to be preferred to any man. For the will of the ruler is determined by the law of God and does not injure liberty. By contrast, the will of the tyrant is a slave to desires and opposing law which supports liberty adventures to impose the yoke of servitude upon fellow slaves. And then about 400 years later, we have John Calvin, uh, a very well-known reformer, uh, writing in his great work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he says this, he says, The Lord, therefore, is king of kings. When he opens his sacred mouth, he alone is to be heard, instead of all and above all. We are subject to the men who rule over us, but subject only in the Lord. If they command anything against him, let us not pay the least regard to it, nor be moved by all the dignity which they possess as magistrates a dignity to which no injury is done when it is subordinated to the special and truly supreme power of God. On this ground, Daniel denies that he had sinned in any respect against the king when he refused to obey his impious decree, because the king had exceeded his limits and not only been injurious to men, but by raising his horn against God, had virtually abrogated his own power. And so, so Calvin there is referring again to the passage in, in Daniel. And if... If you were to keep on reading, after the, uh, the Lion's Den incident, when the king talks to Daniel after he survived, Daniel tells him explicitly that he had done no wrong to the king. 
essentially the king's law uh, was not a law at all uh, because it was unlawful. And this idea that unlawful laws are not laws at all goes all the way back even to the earliest church fathers. I mentioned uh, St. Augustine. Uh, he was the one that wrote an unlawful law is no law at all. And it's interesting if you read the um, letters from a Birmingham jail by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he actually quotes Augustine when he says that. He says, an unlawful law or an unjust law is no law at all. And that's his argument for why he would engage in peaceful protest against the uh, anti-black laws that, uh, or the Jim Crow laws of our era. So we have Martin Luther King Jr. referring all the way back to St. Augustine uh, from 400 AD and we see this, this chain of, of argument of theology as we look to scripture and apply, uh, apply it to our own lives. Um, so, uh, w resistance then, what does it look like? Uh, is it just you know, picking up a weapon? No, no, not, not right away. Uh, the first thing that we see in scripture is prayer and petition. Uh, could someone please read Daniel 4, 24 through 27? So again, the context there, uh, Daniel has gotten that dream, he's interpreted it for Nebuchadnezzar, and it's looking bad for Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to get that seven years acting as an animal. Uh, but Daniel implores him, please repent, uh, turn away from your sins, practice righteousness, and perhaps this won't happen to you. Perhaps God will, will be merciful to you. Now, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't do that, but uh, we see an example where Daniel, as one of his magistrates, is appealing to him to stop sinning, to stop uh, engaging in wickedness. And there are other examples that we see throughout Scripture. We have John the Baptist uh, uh, calling out King Herod to, to not have his brother's wife. We have uh, the Apostle Paul, who, when he was arrested uh, and, and sent to the governor, of, uh, of Judea, uh, first Governor Felix, and then King Agrippa. He is preaching about righteousness, self-control in the coming kingdom, and he wants them all to become Christians, uh, just not for, you know, to be like him, except for those chains that he's, that he's wearing. So we want a petition. We want to pray for, uh, we, we see in Scripture, that we're to pray for all rulers and kings and those who are in authority over us. So we, we want to pray, we want to petition, we want to ask for help, we want to ask people to stop doing uh, what they're doing, their abusive behavior, so that uh, we can live in peace. Um, another step, basically, so step one is, is using our words, prayer and petition, and step two is to, is to flee. Uh, we see this very clearly, an example of David and King Saul, if you look all throughout that uh, those stories uh, uh, David is constantly fleeing from King Saul uh, even though he's armed and he's got his his band of mighty men 
uh, that are that are fleeing uh, and are ready to defend themselves. He's not trying to um, overthrow King Saul, assassinate him, and take over the the throne. David was anointed by God, but he was letting God be the one who decides when King Saul uh, loses his authority, loses his throne, and when he uh, when David takes over. So he's always uh, fleeing from Saul there. And then we have Jesus' teaching in Matthew 10, which was uh, a passage regarding persecution. If they persecute you in one town, flee to the next town. And this, you know, he says you will not travel throughout all the cities of Israel before, before the end. So the principle there is if you're persecuted, be prepared to flee. You try your, you pray, you petition, you want things to, to maintain uh, peace. But then uh, if you have to go, go. Go somewhere that is maybe more peaceful, uh, where God opens up doors for you to preach the gospel and to live a life of, of righteousness. And then the last one, probably the most controversial of all, is fighting. And I will say we're going to get more into this in a little bit here. But in general, this is a last possible option after all have been exhausted and I think there are three clear uh, characteristics of what this fighting looks like and it is both def- it is defensive it is limited and it is orderly uh, and I want to give a couple examples of that here in a little bit um, so and this is where the doctrine of lesser magistrates comes into play because uh, this fighting is more uh, for the other magistrates than it is for just a bunch of random individuals picking up weapons and things like that. So let me just be clear here that we see in Scripture that all levels of authority are ordained by God. That's all kings, all those in authority. Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, it applies to every level. So that is true to county, local, state, federal, any, any level of government. They all have been ordained authority by God. And those who are kind of in the middle, let's say state governors or legislatures or county leaders, they have duty to those above them and to those below them. And they themselves, as magistrates, can engage in prayer and petition. You see uh, county leaders or governors can petition to the president or petition to Congress. Um, They can't really flee so much because they're in charge of a state. The whole state can't just up and leave or the whole county can't just up and leave although you do see the whole tribe of Israel all the tribes leaving Egypt so there's one example where an entire nation can just up and move themselves Uh, but they also have the ability to fight because they have been given the sword as well as the highest authority in the land has been given the sword so again you have human authorities that are all given authority by God they all bear the sword but what happens when one is abusing the other or when one disobeys the other how does that how does that play out and I think we can see some principles in this Uh, to give uh, uh, an example from the ancient world and this is uh, from a a pagan Emperor Trajan was not a Christian but this is around 100 AD Uh, he said this when he promoted a new cavalry officer he said use this sword against my enemies if I give righteous commands but if I give unrighteous commands use it against me so uh, even uh, the pagans recognized this, that, that authority is not unlimited and absolute, but that there are different authorities, and sometimes they don't agree with each other. And the question is, what do you do? So anyways, these other authorities, all authorities must serve God as their highest authority. They must not commit or enable abuse. 
Um, and then these lesser magistrates, to give an example, such as a state or a, or a, or a county authority, uh, they can try to absorb the abuse for their people. So their job is to lead their people and to sacrifice for their people. Um, so let's say that there is uh, a higher uh, authority, like the emperor, who is commanding something wicked, and a governor wants to protect his people from that wickedness. Well, his job as governor is to absorb that for his people. And if, they, if it does come to resistance, of course, you want to pray and petition first. But if it comes to resistance, they must do so in a defensive manner for a limited objective, uh, basically to end the abuse, if you will, and to do so in an orderly manner, not a rabble, not, not anarchy, not revolution, but orderly resistance. Um, again, we, we've seen King David. Uh, he was anointed by Samuel, not yet made king through um, through the covenant, he could flee and he could defend himself. He was armed, and uh, but he just did not take that opportunity to kill Saul when he had the chance. But certainly would have defended himself if was um, if was attacked. Um, the best example of this that I want to read together as a as a group. If you do have uh, your Bibles with you, uh, please turn to Second Kings 11, 1 through 20. So. Uh, I'll just read this because I think it's important, uh, one of the clearest passages in Scripture that's, that shows an example of lesser magistrates resisting wicked authority on behalf of the people and doing what's right. So I'll let, um, give a minute there to turn there. Oh, 2 Kings chapter 11, 1 through 20. 2 Kings 11, 1 through 20. Uh, to give some context here, it's the kingdom of, of, of Judah, and uh, basically the king has died, but his son is, is young, uh, very young, newborn. Uh, but let's just read 2 Kings 11, 1 through 20. Now, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid him from Athaliah, so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord, while Athaliah reigned over the land. But in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of the Karaites and of the guards and had them come to him in the house of the Lord. And he made a covenant with them and put them under oath in the house of the Lord. And he showed them the king's son. And he commanded them, This is the thing that you shall do. One third of you, those who come off duty on the Sabbath and guard the king's house, another third being at the gate, sure, and a third at the gate behind the guards, shall guard the palace. And the two divisions of you which come on duty in force on the Sabbath and guard the house of the Lord on behalf of the king shall surround the king, each with his weapons in his hand, and whoever approaches the ranks is to be put to death. Be with the king when he goes out and when he comes in. The captains did all according to, did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded, and they each brought his men who were to go off duty on the Sabbath with those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath and came to Jehoiada the priest. And the priest gave to the captains the spears and shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of the Lord. 
and the guard stood, every man with his weapons in his hand, from the south side of the house to the north side of the house, around the altar and the house on behalf of the king. Then he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony, and they proclaimed him king and anointed him, and they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. When Athaliah heard the noise of the guard and of the people, she went into the house of the Lord to the people. And when she looked, there was the king standing by the pillar, according to the custom, and the captains and the trumpeteers beside the king, and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets. And Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, Treason, treason. Then Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains who were set over the army, Bring her out between the ranks and put to death with the sword anyone who follows her. For the priest said, Let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord. So they laid hands on her, and she went through the horse's entrance to the king's house, and there she was put to death. And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and people, that they should be the Lord's people, and also between the king and the people. Then all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down. His altars and his images they broke in pieces, and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And the priest posted watchmen over the house of the Lord. And he took the captains, the Karaites, the guards, and all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord, marching through the gate of the guards to the king's house, and he took his seat on the throne of the kings. So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword at the king's house. So Athaliah was the daughter of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, and she was mother to King Ahaziah, which we just read had just died. So she decides to kill all of the royal house, even her own grandson, Joash, uh, but he escapes, of course, and she reigns for six years as queen over Israel. Uh, until Joash is old enough to basically be, be placed on the throne. Now, Jehoiada and the lesser magistrates, they recognized that her authority was, was not legitimate. It was unlawful, what she just did. She just murdered the royal house, took authority for herself, and be becomes the queen of the land for six years. But they... Uh, these lesser magistrates, the Karaites, the guards, Jehoiada, the priests, they're not just random individuals. They have authority too. And their duty is to honor and respect, obey, and sustain the true authority of the land, which was the king Joash. And so they planned to overthrow the queen. This was not just a bunch of random individuals or rabble, but they were lesser magistrates that were doing the right thing in disobedience to Queen Athaliah. And interestingly, she, from her perspective, it was treason. From her perspective, when she sees the king, she's the one that cries out, treason, treason. She's accusing them of treason, but she is the one actually who did the treason in the first place by murdering the royal family and trying to almost erase the line of kings in Israel. So, uh, this, this is just a, an example, one example, probably the clearest example in scripture of lesser magistrates standing up against tyranny and abused authority on behalf of what they saw was right, what, on behalf of what God had established and ordained. So uh, in just these brief examples, the key principles we see here is that we as individual Christians are to know our roles and responsibilities, what sphere we're serving in. And we're to have a, a heart of servant leadership. Our job as leaders is to serve those under our authority. 
and we're to interpose ourselves on behalf of the people that we represent in a sacrificial manner. It's Christ-like in that regard. Christ puts himself, uh, interposes himself on the, between us and the wrath of God, and in a sense, a good lesser magistrate, like a governor or a commissioner or a representative, is going to sacrifice him or herself on behalf of the people that they represent against tyranny or abuse or anything like that. And so in either case, uh, blind rebellion and blind compliance both disobey God. Um, a blind rebellion uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't recognize truly God-given authority. It just eliminates all authority and makes yourself God. But blind compliance also doesn't recognize the boundaries that God has established. God is the one who gave the authority and sets the terms. And to just blindly comply is to not recognize God as ultimately uh, authoritative over these spheres of government. And so uh, this, uh, this pattern of prayer, petition, flight, and fight, it applies to all spheres and all levels of government. It applies to parents, elders, civil magistrates. So there's, I'm sure there's many examples that we could think about uh, there. And I do want to give one example, and it's going to be the example of the American colonies here in, in, in the last few minutes, and then we'll have some time for, for discussion. Um, but before I go into the historical example, any questions up to this point? I know it's been a lot. It's a lot to cover in one class. Okay. Well, keep dwelling on the questions and comments, because I, I want to see this applied in, uh, applied in real life, because I know that real life examples kind of make things a little bit easier than just looking at things ethereally or abstractly. So I think one of the best examples in all of human history of this Christian understanding of resistance was seen in the founding of the American, uh, American nation. So just to give you historical context, uh, I mentioned this before, but our colonies were formed under royal charter. So that means it was a, a covenant between the king and the colonies. The, the colonists. And one example is our own charter, Pennsylvania, dated in 1701. It says this. It says, the General Assembly shall have power to prepare bills in order to pass into laws and shall have all other powers and privileges of an assembly according to the rights of the freeborn subjects of England. So in this regard, the PA General Assembly is like a miniature parliament. So they have the power to pass laws in the colony of Pennsylvania they have all the, uh, the privileges and rights of English citizens. So those are not to be taken away or detracted from. They're not uh, a bunch of slaves or subjects. They are citizens, and they have their own uh, uh, representative government blessed by the king and signed as a covenant in 1701. Now, a little bit before this time and a little bit after this, England had a civil war in the mid-1600s, and then they had a, another revolution uh, in the 1680s. I'm not going to go into all the details on, on that, but essentially it was a battle between Parliament and the King, who has ultimate authority in England. And Parliament basically won out in the end. So Parliament has much greater authority. Uh, the King was kind of curtailed a lot in what he could do. Um, but as a result of some of the wars that had been going on, such as the French and Indian War and some of the other decisions that England had made, they needed more tax revenue. And they saw the colonies as a very much untapped resource that they could use to pay off their debts and to 
give themselves a little bit more of a revenue revenue stream there. Um, all right, so the colonies, they need to pay, they can pay, and we need more money, so let's make it happen. Now, in 1766, Parliament decides that it's going to assert itself, just like it did over the king, now it's going to assert itself over the colonies. And so it passes the Declaratory Act of 1766, which basically declares all of the colonial government actions as utterly null and void. So completely undermining all of the general assemblies and the representative governments in the colonies. And then it also says that it, Parliament, has the full power and authority to bind the colonies and peoples of America. Now the king does not intervene with this. So in this regard, Parliament's usurping his authority because, because the charter is between him and the colonies, not between Parliament and the colonies, between him and the colonies. And Parliament's like, no, 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 we're in charge. Colonies have no authority except what we say that they have. And we have the authority to bind them. And the king, well, he just, he just lets us do it. That's, that's all. It's, it's, it's all us now. It's all us. And so this is obviously becomes a problem for the, our, for the colonists, right? And we see uh, a denial of rights as Englishmen. So there's no longer a trial by a jury of peers. We have issues where uh, cases are, are taken back to England and tried in English courts, not in, a, not in the colonial courts. Obviously, we have taxation without representation. The people that are being taxed don't have any representatives in Parliament. Parliament in England is voted on by the people in England, not voted on by the people in America. They are imposing laws and taxes upon people that they don't really represent. They're claiming representation that does not exist. They also dissolved colonial government bodies. So they declared their authority to be null and void. And they basically said, if you meet you're unlawful. If the General Assembly tries to meet, it is not recognized and it is an act of rebellion against Parliament. So they dissolved the colonial government bodies, which is, by the way, as a point of fact, just very ironic because one of Parliament's issues with the king in the English Civil War was that the king was dissolving Parliament uh, by his own uh, absolute authority. The king could just snap his fingers and say Parliament is dissolved. Uh, there and Parliament did not like that and asserted themselves and put restrictions in place on the king after the English Civil War. But now Parliament is going to dissolve our bodies, or the colonial bodies of government, uh, without a care in the world. And in, in all of this, they're violating the covenants that were established and signed already, uh, you know, almost you know, you know, hundreds of years ago, as early for Virginia was one of the earliest in the early 1600s. So over 100 years ago, we have these charters and covenants basically being ripped up and thrown away, and Parliament is doesn't really care about it. They're going to assert their own authority. So we have the Continental Congress forms. Uh, it's an illegal Congress, by the way, in October 1774, and they petitioned the king. They sent a letter to the king because they want the king to get involved here and to do the right thing. And they say this, we therefore most earnestly beseech your majesty that your royal authority interposition, interposing, may be used for our relief and that a gracious answer may be given to this petition. So they want the king to step in between the colonies and parliament and to make things right and, and keep parliament from abusing their authority here. Uh, but the king uh, doesn't, doesn't do that. He, he doesn't really have a desire 
or the will to do it. Perhaps he's okay with the extra tax revenue. Um, there's different arguments as to as to why he did not uh, step in against against Parliament. Um, and then in 1775, uh, Congress offers a final petition, and this is after the battles of Lexington and Concord. Uh, there, but even after these battles, Congress tries to offer an olive branch, and they say this to the king. Your majesty's ministers, persevering in their measures and proceeding to open hostilities for enforcing them, have compelled us to arm in our own defense and have engaged us in a controversy so peculiarly abhorrent to the affections of your still faithful colonists that when we consider whom we must oppose in this contest, and if it continues, what may be the consequences, our own particular misfortunes are accounted by us only as parts of our distress. So here they even verbally say that they are still faithful colonists to the king, but his ministers, your majesty's ministers, are abusing their authority and the king's not doing anything about it. And so this is their their last call for for peace. Now, um, but at the same time that they send out this letter, they also send out a letter explaining why they took up arms in the first place. Uh, the causes and necessity of taking up arms was also written in July 1775 and sent to the king. And here's what it says. But why should we enumerate our injuries in detail? By one statute, it is declared that Parliament can of right make laws to bind us in all cases whatsoever. What is to defend us against so enormous, so unlimited a power? Not a single man of those who assume it is chosen by us or is subject to our control or influence. But on the contrary, they are all of them exempt from the operation of such laws and an American revenue, if not diverted from the ostensible purposes for which it is raised, would actually lighten their own burdens in proportion as they increase ours. We saw the misery to which such despotism would, would reduce us. We, for 10 years, incessantly and ineffectually besieged the throne as supplicants. We reasoned, we remonstrated with Parliament in the most mild and decent language. And so you see the, the key arguments here. They are referring to the Declaratory Act that Parliament can bind them in any case whatsoever, and not a single member of Parliament is chosen by the American colonists. And the members of Parliament, when they pass laws, they're not subject to those laws. So they're passing a law that applies to America, but they themselves are not subject to that law. And that's a serious problem. When the lawmakers are, are exempt from the laws, you have uh, an issue there of abuse of, of power and authority. And so this was uh, their petition to, to the king. Now, as we know, a year later, when nothing gets resolved, we declare independence. And here is this one section of our declaration. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such, such has been the patient endurance, or sorry, patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. Now, essentially, that is a uh, certificate of divorce uh, from the king and parliament. So it, there was the prayer, there was the petition, and now here is the here is the flight. So the flight, they can't just up and move themselves to Mars or something like that. They are separating themselves legally, like a divorce in a way. So that's how they are fleeing from the British Empire, by separating and forming their own independent country. And the fighting takes place because 
England doesn't want to let them go. And so we see a defensive war taking place on the colon colonial soil, American soil, for the, it's very limited, it's defensive, and it's orderly. It's not a bunch of random citizens. There's state governments, there's local militias. It's a very orderly uh, fight for uh, independence there. And um, one thing to keep in mind also, we, we call it the American Revolution, but that's not the most accurate way to describe it because a revolution is meant to overthrow the existing authority and replace it with something else. And the Americans had no desire to eliminate parliament or to kill the king and to put on another ruler. They wanted to simply separate, separate from the mother country in a divorce-like proceeding. And so I believe this to be one of the best examples of lesser magistrates from a, from a Christian perspective, a biblical concept of lesser magistrates. Uh, they're responsible to those under their care. They are praying. They are petitioning those in a higher authority. They're trying to flee, separate themselves, and they do fight when they have to, but it was defensive, limited, and orderly. And so that is uh, what I wanted to share with you today as an example of, of good uh, civil disobedience. Yeah, go ahead. That's fine. What you were just saying in the last couple of sentences, sure. to me, sure. sounds like what the South wanted when it led to the war between the states. Yes. And that is another interesting topic. And the question of debate, even today, can a state secede from the Union? And, and you made a similar argument to why I object to the term civil war, because to mm -hmm. me that means two factions battling for control of the same geopolitical entity. Interesting. And all the South wanted was that is true. That is true. And there's a lot of nuance there, uh, real briefly. Like, so, for instance, South Carolina, when Lincoln won the election, they seceded. So their argument was, if he wins, we're leaving. Now, I think that's a really stupid and childish thing to do. But that's what they did. Okay. Whether you agree with that or not, the question is, do they have the right to do that? That is, it's been debated all along. Um, but then a, a state like Virginia. They did not leave until Lincoln actually called up an army to invade the South. Then they said, you've overstepped your authority. You don't have the constitutional authority to wage war on your own states, on your own people. You don't have that authority. Now we're leaving for that reason. So there are different reasons why different states left the Union, some for better reasons than others. And it, it is one of those things that was never clarified by the Founding Fathers. It never was. So when our Constitution was founded, right, it was ratified by nine out of 13 colonies. That's what made it ratified. But Rhode Island didn't ratify. They were the last ones to ratify it. And there was no requirement for them to do so. What if they hadn't? Would they have been forced into uh, the United States at the very beginning of our, of our country? It's hard to say. Uh, during the War of 1812, uh, some of the northern states thought about uh, seceding from the Union. Uh, I think New Hampshire and Massachusetts considered, considered doing it. So the debate is always, can a state, once part of the covenant, can they leave or can they not leave? That's, that's a debatable question. Yeah, go ahead. Hi. Yeah. But I was waiting for the New Testament 
Well, good question. Thank you very much for that question. Um, yeah, so we do pray for the kings and those in authority, and we want to submit to all governing authorities. And the question is, when, they, when mommy and daddy disagree, who do you submit to? Okay, so, so now what's interesting is that even today, there are, there's always going to be a, um, a doctrine of civil disobedience. We have Martin Luther King Jr. disobeying the civil authorities. Um, he's not taking up arms per se, but, but as an individual, he is protesting, right? But you have, you have states today that disobey. There are states that have, um, that are, um, have legalized marijuana. That's federally illegal. You know, Colorado is disobeying the federal government right now. There are cities that ha are called sanctuary cities that they don't prosecute illegal immigration. They're disobeying either state government or federal government. So th the question is whether, not whether, but, but which. You know, you're not whether or not you're going to have some kind of doctrine, but which kind. Now, as far as um, individual Christians go, like, again, I think the doctrine of lesser magistrates is so important here. Um, if we had, let's say, a local militia or let's say the National Guard, for example, um, let's give an example where, let's say, uh, we get a new governor of Pennsylvania, and even though Roe versus Wade is overturned, um, there's always the thought, like, what happens if the governor just ups and says, I declare Pennsylvania with the General Assembly to be a sanctuary state. No, no unborn babies will die in this state. Let's say he did that in violation of, of Roe versus Wade. So now we have a battle between the Supreme Court and the federal government and the state of Pennsylvania. Now. Would it come to blows? I mean, maybe it could. I don't know what the governor would do in that situation, but maybe he would call up the National Guard and say, hey, we're here to protect the citizens of Pennsylvania, born and unborn. We are going to defend ourselves in case they try to force us to allow abortion. You know, I call up the militia to, to defend in that regard. And I think in that case, Christians, uh, like the Roman centurion, you know, Jesus never tells them to, to stop being centurions or to throw down their weapons uh, and, to, and to just stop. Uh, they're to be faithful in what they do. And I think that um, there are places where individual Christians in their offices, uh, like a militia or lesser magistrate or uh, if they're a representative or if they're a county commissioner, they have a job to do. Um, and they might call up uh, an orderly resistance against um, uh, an aggressive attacker. Does that kind of answer your question a little bit? It's not a, it's not a rabble of uh, <laughs> it's not it's not a random. I'm not going to just pick up my gun and just. True. Oh, I agree. I think he set I think he set the seeds in place for the end of slavery. In, in, the, in the world that becomes Christian, in the world that was Christianized. But he did not call for a violent uh, thing there. Um, so, and I do want to make a distinction between um, uh, 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 being persecuted for the name of Christ and, and being attacked by, let's say, a mugger or a robber. Because it is true that Jesus did allow his disciples to have swords 
and they would be numbered by the transgressors. And he told them to buy swords. They're going to be on the roads. There's, there's robbers, there's muggers, uh, all kinds of things. I have no problem as a father if someone puts a gun to my head and says, uh, you know, you, you're going to come get arrested and we're going to persecute you as a Christian. Deny Christ. No. Okay, kill me. That's fine. But let's say we're living in China before they had a two-child policy or a three-child policy. They had a one-child policy. And they say, one child, any other children, oh, you're getting forced abortion. Forced abortion on your, on your wife. Um, and if they find out my wife is pregnant with her second child, I will do whatever I can as a Christian man to protect her. We will try to pray and petition and get out of there. But if they're coming after her to force my wife to have an abortion and murder my child, uh, that's wicked and I'll stand up against them. And I'll sacrifice myself to protect those under my care. So I think there's a place, whether in the family or the church uh, or whatnot, I mean, you know, let's say we, God forbid, we have an active shooter uh, here. I would hope that the men of this church would would do something about the active shooter and use force to stop him uh, uh, while also getting the women and children out, get them, get them away, um, rather than saying, "Oh, well, let's just all just die." Like I, I, I it's not. So I'm called to sacrifice my life, but it would be wrong for me to sacrifice my children's life to just say, "Oh, well, you know, child, it's persecution, daughter, uh, you can just go ahead and die." No, no, no. I'll die, but but not them, not them. My job is to interpose myself on their behalf against the threat. Yeah, go ahead. I, I, I agree with your argument, but... Mm-hmm. Sure, um, sure, it's good. I think the question was, like, how, like, in the New Testament, mm-hmm. where do you see support for this? And I didn't hear that in your answer. Okay. Your answer kind of took Christian values and applied it to the situation. Okay. But what's the actual biblical New Testament support for this? Do you want to talk about this? I, I don't know if I'm touching upon this, but it's kind of uh, maybe I'm yeah, triangulating ahead. here. But sure. um, I don't think I think I would caution against thinking that loving and praying for your enemy is synonymous with doing nothing or just you know having kind words or blind compliance. I would caution against that. Even as parents, you know we don't you know sometimes love is is tough, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And um, so I would caution against. You know, we think of Jesus with the sheep, right? But we don't think of him as, you know, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and we don't think of God's wrath. But that's coming from a place of love, right? Um, so this is just, you know, my thinking on this, just this idea that love and, and praying for enemy is synonymous with doing nothing when evil is um, coming at you. Um, but also that I think that, and I think you're touching on this, that sacrificial love that is within us when we have the Holy Spirit and we are born again, that has come, that has been placed in us through Christ, um, and that same spirit of justice. Um, I think that that compels us to, like you said, if someone's coming to, to you know, you're going to step in the way of your children. You're going to defend them, right? I think that's come. That is love, and I think that that is not contradicting the love and praying for your enemy. And I think it's actually sacrificial. And I think that 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 pattern is in Scripture. So uh, I would, I don't think you're going to find in scripture a prescription to take up arms in world war. I just don't think. Well, the Old Testament. I don't think it's all through the Old Testament, but I think there is a prescription in 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 the Sermon on the Mount that we are to be salt and light. 
and the soul is to preserve the good. And, and so I think that that is the culture war that we kind of started this with. So I would say that, you know, in my mind, I think of the um, abolition of the slave trade spearheaded by Wilberforce, 30 some years. The abolition of slavery in the United States was 100 years. And does anybody here think that it would have happened without the Civil War, without the Emancipation Proclamation? I don't think so. It, it, it may have eventually petered out, but it, I mean, it was in the 1960s where we were still fighting that war. So I think without arms, it doesn't happen. And then the most recent example is Roe, right? That's 49 years. So it, it's, it is amazing to me that we need to be on our knees, praying, patient, because the culture wars don't occur in like a week or two. <laughs> We're talking decades in, in the case of the abolition of slavery, a century of work. And many of those people who are engaged in that culture war never lived to see it. And that's true for Roe, by the way. Many of the people that I know and worked with early in the, you know, to try and reverse Roe never lived to see it overturned. And by the way, I, we're not done. Rose, we're not done with that no, fight either. No, no. So, yeah, so I, look, I think it, it, it's very difficult. So I would say the uh, preservation of the good and sometimes, and I think uh, to your point, Eric, it's never an offensive thinking no. of arms. It's always defensive and just war, you know, just, just war doctrines, it's basically defensive. So when you look at that, and, and the hard thing is, like, look, uh, I I do believe we want to use all of Scripture, and I we want to be faithful in interpreting the Old Testament properly. Um, and uh, you know, there's many things that you won't find in the New Testament. You're not going to find any prohibition against bestiality in the New Testament. Jesus does not talk about uh, things like like drug use or bestiality. But he but but he points to God's law. God's law. Uh, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Um, uh, we, we obey the, the, the fruit of the Spirit. And even Paul talks about what is love. He even says that in, uh, in Romans 14. He, uh, actually, I'm sorry, in, in Romans uh, 13. Let's pull it up real quick here. Uh, at the end of that, he says, uh, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, murder, steal, you shall not cover any other commandment are summed up in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what does love look like? obeying the commandments of God. And loving your neighbor might mean sometimes defending your neighbor when he or she is being attacked. Okay. Now, we don't want to have to take life, God forbid, God forbid, but if your neighbor is being assaulted and you sit there and do nothing, that is not loving your neighbor. Uh, scripture is very clear about that um, in the Old Testament. So I guess that's kind of where I would, I would, I would end that discussion. I mean, my my thoughts on that would, and given our time limits here, um, I do think it matters what sphere you're talking about. Uh, my role as a military officer, you know, I wield the sword in a in a certain capacity that I don't wield here as an elder or in my home as a father. I, it depends on my hat that I'm wearing, if that if that makes sense. But either way, I'm a Christian through and through. I'm a Christian flying a flying a drone. I'm a Christian as a father, and I'm a Christian, hopefully, as an elder. You know, that's, that's important there, too. So, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Think about, here was a guy who was probably in that camp where he 
felt that passive resistance was the way to He go. struggled with it. He was, he was forced to deal with the decision yeah. as part of the conspiracy to assassinate Hitler. It was when he looked at what was going on, he had to do one of these. I can't imagine what that thought process was. Yeah. You know, how do I stop all these Jews and people from being exterminated? How do I do this? Do I sit back and do that's hard. I can't imagine that. Yeah, go ahead. I'd also say it's about his kingdom. Yeah. yeah, make disciples of all nations. So we we have he's a king, and we're under his authority. He he, yeah. Go ahead. Sure, sure. Um, but he is the ruler. Of But what Jesus does allows us to live with each other and shows us what it means to live with each other and to resist sin and to resist evil. Like how do you and, and Christians have been struggling with this and trying to live this out for thousands of years and that's why you just go back to Augustine or John of Salisbury or John Calvin. All these great thinkers are trying to work out. I'm a Christian, the government's not, these people are not, what do we do? How does that how does that work? If the Catholics during the Reformation are burning the Protestants, how do you handle that? If you are pro if you are a Protestant uh, mayor or a Protestant governor, and the king says, "Give me all your Protestants, we're burning them all," well, what do you do? Bloody Mary's on the throne in England. What what do you do now? A lot of them fled to Geneva. A lot of the English, you know, Miles Coverdale and other people fled to Geneva because she was Bloody Mary. She was she was burning the, the Protestants, but there were some that also resisted her in that regard. So yeah, it's it's a long, difficult, but I do think there are some some principles that we derive from Scripture and from history that can help us with this. So uh, I know it's been a lot and a lot more talk about. So next week, uh, bring all your questions to Brad, and 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 he will he will answer he will answer. So it'll be great. The biggest setup. You're, you're good. He's, he's good to go. He's good to go. Let me, let me close in prayer. Uh, Lord, thank you for this day, for our time, for this good discussion, hard discussion. Uh, help us to be uh, students of your word and just to really work these things out, to be, at the end of the day, uh, honoring to you, glorifying to you, and loving of our neighbor. We pray that you be with us now as we go into worship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that discussion on civil disobedience and resistance. It's a, it's a heavy topic and a broad topic, but... Hopefully you found it useful uh, in that about an hour long class uh, that we covered it. Uh, and as a reminder, this week was my last episode for this season, and I'll pick back up again in about a month. September will be the next uh, publishing for Governed by God. So if you have any questions, comments, want some topics uh, that you think I need to address, please email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can go on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gab, 
and contact me there. Of course, please share the show with coworkers, friends, and family. All of that helps to get this podcast out to more folks. So, hope you enjoyed this season, and I will see you in September. Until then, take care and God bless.